Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. Today, we have with us an esteemed guest right here in the studio, Dr. Siri Khalsa. Dr. Khalsa is going to be talking to us about mind-body healing and Reiki and therapy. You're going to want to stay tuned for this educational, enthusiastic, and heartfelt interview. First, some news and notes in psychology and medicine. Some years ago, my assistant manager over at Wilbur Hot Springs, Meg Soliqui, went to a place down in San Diego where she ate raw food for seven days and went on a mind-body-health journey. Meg came back with a rejuvenated spirit. It was very interesting to watch. I was so enthused that I asked her to go back again a couple of years later, which she did. She came back again, rejuvenated and very enthusiastic with almost a new outlook on life. And so, two weeks ago, I decided to go to this place myself. And I got on a plane, I went down uh, to Los Angeles, actually, where I had a, a national board meeting of something called the Marijuana Policy Project. I was elected to this board uh, several months ago. The Marijuana Policy Project is the most powerful lobby group for the legalization of marijuana in the United States. And this organization is behind the 16 states that now have medical marijuana laws. It was founded by Rob Campia uh, about maybe 10, maybe 15 at this point years ago. and. Um, so I went to the meeting in, uh, in Los Angeles on Saturday and Saturday night, and then uh, Sunday morning I went to Los Angeles airport to fly down to San Diego. I was about to get on the plane at uh, 10 minutes after 11 when we received an announcement that there was a delay. And then we received an announcement that there was another delay. So I walked into an office of the, uh, of the airline and I said, look, I've got to get down to this place. Could you just be honest with me and tell me what's actually going on? And, um, and they said, well, we really don't know if there's going to be a plane or not. And, um, and the next thing I knew, there was an announcement. And sure enough, the plane had a mechanical defect and there was going to be no plane. And then they announced that they didn't have another plane. Then they announced that there were no other airlines that could take us, that every other airline was booked. And then they announced that we should go get our bags and go back to the baggage place and get our bags off the carousel and there would be a bus waiting for us. So we went down there and there was no bus. So again, I traipsed into the office and I said, hi, it's me again. And please just uh, be honest with me again and tell me what's going on. Uh, there are a lot of people out there and they're very anxious and I can feel the anxiety and the, and the uh, frustration level growing with this crowd. And they said, well, there'll be a bus, but we really can't, in all honesty. We don't know how long it's going to take. It could be a long time before the bus comes. We, we, we haven't even reached the bus company yet. So I went back out into the carousel, and here are these people, and everybody you can imagine are getting nervous, and, and, uh, and, and where they, how they're going to make their connections, and some of them have to blah, blah, blah. And so I thought to myself, how can I make something positive out of this whole thing? What can I do? So I said, hey... I made a little outcry and I said, hey, how many of you want to get together with me and let's go rent a vehicle and just drive our way down to San Diego? And all of a sudden there was this little group around me. And so there were these seven other people and the eight of us 
uh, got in a, in, a, in, a, uh, in a bus, actually, we got in a bus, and we took a bus to a rental car place. And it was just so interesting how the eight of us each took a different role. One person checked out the, um, the, the different vehicles, and one person checked out, got their credit card ready, and one person interviewed the staff member about who, you know, what they had and you know, what would work best. Should we take two cars for eight people, four in each? Should we take... And at the bottom line, we ended up renting a uh, Suburban that took eight people. We got all eight of us and all of our luggage into it. And we got into the vehicle together and we had a love fest. And we just had the most wonderful time. And we introduced ourselves to each other. Five of them were scientists going, they were global positioning experts. And they were going to a conference of 24,000 people down in San Diego. There was a border guard. Uh, from uh, San Diego who had this dangerous job working on the border. There was myself, a clinical psychologist, and, uh, and there was an economist. And it was interesting how we took different roles. Oh, and then there was the curator of the Arboretum in, Sa- in, uh, in Davis, California. Uh, Mia was her name. And as we drove and, and, and navigated and did different things, each of us took different roles and it was a collaborative uh, majesty. And uh, we've been communicating. And then as when, when we left, we turned in the vehicle. The same thing happened. How we, was one person took over the economics, figuring out how much money we laid out and how much each person owed. And then another person collected the money and gave it to the person who put their, their uh, credit card up. And since then, the eight of us have all been in contact with each other. And we've been sending, and, and, and there were group photographs that we took, and we've been sending photographs to one another. And then one person took charge of communicating with the airline to get our money back, and, and then sent the letter to everybody for editing, and who wants to put in more information. And it was a, it was a delight in a collaborative, in turning something that was, could be potentially very inconvenient at most, right? That would be it. Would be a big inconvenience. Turning it into something positive, delightful experience. I so then I got myself to the Optimum Health Institute in San Diego, and actually it was in Lemon Grove, California. And for seven days, I ate raw food, cold raw food. Obviously cold because raw food isn't cooked. And for three of the seven days, I fasted. I had a juice fast only. And we did very light uh, yoga exercises, very light. And we had classes twice a day uh, in, in, in mind-body health. And it was a very interesting experience, the, uh, an, an educational. Um, people came from all over the world. There were people from Russia and people from Turkey. I got friendly with a man from Turkey who lives in Reno. All, all Americans, but, but from other countries who, who had moved here, from Persia, from Turkey, from, from Russia, from France, uh, all there for their health. And I, um, I experienced some very unusual things and very unusual for my scientific mind. I met a woman who had gone there with stage four cancer and in three months, her cancer was gone. Um, I met a woman who went there with type 1 diabetes. And in two months, her diabetes numbers were down to normal. So it was um, something really to reflect upon. More and more, I'm telling you the story because there's more and more information coming from all sources, from the spiritual community, from the intellectual community, from the scientific community, about the power of the mind in healing. In fact, some medical doctors are now saying it's all the mind in healing. 
And of course, you've heard me talk on this program about the placebo factor and how placebos in so many cases are more effective than the drugs themselves. You heard me talk about that several weeks ago when I was talk talking about the, um, the uh, potential scandal in the pharmaceutical industry over the fact that the SSRIs are now considered by many to be not only not helpful but actually injurious and that they're really working as a, as a function of being a placebo. Well, this is a great introduction to our guest today. Our guest today has spent his life in the world of mind-body medicine. Dr. Sirigan Khalsa is a Reikian therapist. He's a Kundalini yoga instructor. He has a very diverse uh, background. He, um, he's been a student of meditation and tantra for 35 years. He, uh, he has practiced hatha yoga, transcendental meditation for five years. Uh, he's lived in spiritual communities and for 11 years of his life, he's lived abroad studying with traditional healers. He, uh, he knows jin-shin acupressure. Uh, I could go on and on, but better to get to him rather than his background. Dr. Khalsa Siri, welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Thank you. It's a pleasure being here. You have done so, so much studying in your life. Uh, you're a perpetual student of life, aren't you? I love learning. It just never stopped. What brought you into this area that is called mind-body healing rather than mind healing or body healing? Mm -hmm. Because mind healing is usually associated with psychology and psychiatry, and body healing is typically associated with more medical practitioner work. And, and yet you, for, for decades now, have been in mind-body. How did that occur? How did, how did you, how were you fortunate enough to go that path? Since I was, my very first memories were about questioning why are we here on earth? Who are we anyway? Um, what is this life thing about? And I used to think it was in religions I would find answers to stuff like that. Although I was always an athlete. And since I was very young, I've been involved in athletic things. And I noticed that through using my body, I could access a lot of the miraculous things I was looking for. It wasn't just the reading, it was the, the physical experiences that opened up a lot of surprising things. For example, the big surprise for me is I boxed for 15 years, and I found that when I really sincerely loved the person I was boxing with, it went very well for me. What as long as I wasn't afraid. And then if I was afraid, I'd get rigid. So right there, I noticed something very important that led me to meditation. To stay very centered and to keep the heart really open accessed a lot of what I was looking for. I ended up going to many different churches and um, I, my best friend in eighth grade hated the Jewish temple and I'm not Jewish, but um, I went to the whole training for him to go through his bar mitzvah. And I loved it. And I've done that over and over. And I went to catechism with my friend Aidan Flanagan when we lived in Washington, D.C. area. Um, I've had the joy of learning about many different religions and thought that was where I would find these answers. But I find it's broader than that. It's, for me, much more in the body. And it's much more universal. Like, for example, if we see nature as the, as the temple, that's really where I would find my sense of connection with life that I've been looking for. 
What a surprising thing to hear that a man finds meditation through boxing. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> what an interesting mm. thing to, to encounter such mm -hmm. a gentle soul as you who boxed for 15 years. Mm -hmm. it, it means all roads lead to paradise That's if you right. stay on one long <laughs> enough, doesn't it? You know, Richard, there's no sport I've ever seen where after the event, people, two tough men are blubbering and saying, I love you. And nobody can understand what they went through but the other person. And so there's this, it, it, you end, you're trying to kill each other, and you end up over and over and over again feeling tremendous respect and love. And we know that about yin and yang. If we go too young, we become yin. And too yin, we become yang. And boxing is a beautiful example of that. So, so you combined some wisdom that you gained from athletics with your study of the mind... And then how did you get into the spirit or emotional part in order to bring all three together at an early stage mm. in order to direct your, your seeking and your education? Mm -hmm. How did that come about? I grew up a lot of the time out of doors. I loved nature as a boy. And I had lots of experiences of feeling the, the aliveness of nature and the wisdom of nature and that really we were one. And um, so that was part of it. And then I had a mother who was a mystic. She meditated always. And my father also believed in, he was a nature lover and a gardener and had a tremendous rapport. He had a green thumb and, and he was a healer, among other things. And so I grew up in, in a milieu of uh, lots of faith and a sense that there's a connection in, between everything in life. So there was already in your family uh, a background of some kind of spirituality. Mm -hmm. What an interesting thing to hear because I know from a conversation we had right before the program that your father worked for the CIA. One doesn't associate mysticism and spirituality <laughs> with CIAism, do we? You're right, yeah. Isn't that funny with life? Any judgment we make about what somebody's doing or what they look like, we're usually just full of it, aren't we? Because there's always more depth to it than that. He was also a very famous water dowser. Really? He had a gift. Um, he was the most type A person I've ever met, constantly running and moving and, and worrying about things. But when he was with plants or when he was water dowsing, he was absolutely one-pointed and relaxed. And I saw that. And that, that was very impressive to me, that, that um, we could shift gears. We had so much freedom. We don't have to be stuck in one mode of feeling or being. And my dad was a great model of that for me. So you were able to see complexity, that a man isn't a CIA man and just a CIA man in, in whatever vision we have of a CIA man, cold, calculating, shooting people, killing uh, world leaders, doing spy stuff. But he was much more complex than that. Mm -hmm. And you saw the complex dance between your parents that opened you up to be able to then go about the journey of your studies. Mm -hmm. Beautifully stated, yeah. What, what was the most, the most seminal, the most, uh, the most opening of your early experiences in your life as you set forth on this journey of education, seeking, and then healing, of course? This is very petty, and I'm ashamed to admit it, but it's the first thing that came into my mind. I was an entrepreneur when I was really young. I had um, about 10 um, lawnmowers and, 
and I did yard work, and other people worked with me, and my partner was about 40 years old, and I was maybe 11 when we began the business together. And he noticed that I was having fun all the time, constantly playing. I was the one who made contacts with the customers and did a lot of the work and got the other people to work for us. But um, he was jealous of me, basically. And one time he blew up at me and said, Sirigyan, you're never going to go to college. You don't have any discipline. You're not going to go anywhere. And he stopped being partners. And I was so hurt. And that was a huge impetus to me to... Um, go to university to get a master's degree, to get a doctorate, to get all but two chapters done in a second doctorate, and to keep being an explorer about what are we doing on earth? What is our connection between each other? What are our potentials? His um, doubting me, since I loved him so much and there was such a bond between us, it felt like such a betrayal, it was a spark plug to um, keep me in deep inquiry for many, many years. Into the hugest questions. What are we doing here? What it's all about? Uh -huh. huh? Where do we come yeah. from? Where are we going? Right. But, Siri, I'm going to take the liberty of asking you a very personal question right here on the radio, uh, which I'm going to be asking more and more people, because I was, I was very uh, moved and influenced to read that the great astronomer and physicist uh, Carl Sagan, uh, his widow, uh, was allowed to admit uh, by letters that he wrote before he died that he made some of his di greatest discoveries, some world-shaking discoveries, under the influence of uh, lysergic acid diethylamide, known to the public as LSD. He was, he was so um, afraid, evidently, of our culture and what our culture would think about him or, or what our how is our culture would act towards him had they known while he was alive that he made these great mm. discoveries under the influence of this medicine that he didn't tell anyone, only allowed his widow to say it after he died. Mm -hmm. But now we know, the truth is out, that he used LSD as a medicine for his discoveries. He used marijuana as well. Have you taken any of these medicines, and have they had any of the any uh, such influence on you in your in your uh, in your path, Richard? If I answer this question, you're going to have to promise to tell no one. This is between you and me, and anybody else hearing it. I personally will promise to tell no one. However, <laughs> I, you know the, the walls have ears in this I room. Know, and I it's know. It's quite possible that there are others <laughs> listening. Maybe I've heard that at least five are out there. Uh -huh. When I was a senior at UC Berkeley, where I graduated from with honors, I um, would fast and um, meditate for hours and hours and hours. For several days I would fast, and then I'd go into the Berkeley Hills and take LSD alone. And that was a turning point in my life in seeing the connection between everything the connection between human beings and plants, the aliveness of the earth, uh, that we all are absolutely clairvoyant, but our fears stop us from that, that knowing. So I, I got huge insights from that, but I was also, I grew up very Christian and very um, under the sway of, of Western morality. And, um, and so, your dad was CIA. Yeah. So I didn't. I. I. My dream was to find a natural way of accessing those kind of insights. And then some years later, I bumped into a Kundalini yoga class, and that's the yoga that involves more breathing than any other yoga. 
It's mm -hmm. breath and movement together. And they find that by certain kinds of exercises, we can change our brain waves so that they resemble those of somebody who's meditated every day for 40 years by breath and movement. And I was just, uh, the first experience with Kundalini Yoga, I'd astro, I astro-projected, I saw auras. It opened up a whole world that I wanted to gain naturally without LSD. So I started doing it eight to ten hours a day. The Kundalini eight Yoga. to ten hours a day of breathing exercise. For three years. And how old were you then? Twenty-six. And how old were you when this LSD experience took place? Twenty-three. And how old are you now? Sixty-six. So we're talking some 40 years ago. That's right. And if I understand the progression, the progression, you went from taking this medicine, mm -hmm. having this sense of oneness with mm -hmm. nature, with mm -hmm. the world, with your fellow human beings, and then looking for a way to achieve that same feeling, that same inner result without taking the medicine. That's correct. Yeah. This, you might say, similar to the use of all medicines, where we hope that we can use it for a crutch for a very short period of time and then stop using it. That's a Whether, good insight. Yes, yes I and totally And very hopefully stop using it. Yeah. Unfortunately, as you well know, Siri, people start taking these medicines, and then whether it's because of the culture, their medical doctor, or the pharmaceutical compa companies, or the media, whatever it is, they start taking the medicines in what I call an annuity. Namely, they take it forever, mm -hmm. rather than take it as a short-term crutch for a few weeks or possibly mm -hmm. a few months. Mm -hmm. And many of us know that we have people all around the country we have people in our local community who are taking these various kinds of psychoactive medicines, be it Prozac, Abilify, Wellbutrin, Zoloft, Effexor, uh, Seroquel, on and on and on, you know. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, they're the painkilling medicines. They're taking them not just for weeks and a few months, but for years and years and years. Mm -hmm. And we, we, we can't even measure the effects. But you went a different route, mm -hmm. and that's what's important here. You went the route of I learned about it from the medicine and now I'm looking for a natural way and you did find it and one of the ways you found it I hear is in breathing yoga. Mm -hmm. Give us some fundamentals please. I know you can't tell us about eight, ten hours a day for three years but give us some fundamentals in the use of breathing and healing and how you apply that to your patients. Mm -hmm. Great question. There are more different forms of breath in Kundalini Yoga and a more sophisticated understanding of breath than in any other yoga. What's diff different about Kundalini is the breathing. It's constantly part of it, and there are hundreds of forms of breath that we use in Kundalini Yoga. Uh, for 40 years, Richard, I've made my living assisting people to improve their breathing. I'm a Reichian therapist, as in Wilhelm Reich. And so the, the Kundalini that I do is all breathing, and the breath therapy that I do with people is nonverbal. It's having people breathe. Most people don't breathe very much. We've inhibited not only our sexuality, but with that, our breathing. But suppose people, are listen, suppose people are listening to this and they say, what's this guy talking about? I breathe all the time. How can I not <laughs> breathe? If I didn't breathe, I'd be dead. I mean, who has to learn how to breathe? Everybody knows how to breathe. In fact, you don't have to learn how to breathe uh -huh. because you just breathe. Yeah, I agree so, with you. <laughs> so, so teach us something here. What's different about this? What do you mean you teach people to breathe? Uh -huh. We know how to breathe. Most people, good point, most people breathe about one-tenth the amount of air that they should breathe to be fully healthy when they're not thinking about it. We have a huge capacity to imagine if, if a person got 10 times more air through and they're not thinking about it. There's, it gives potency, it gives clarity of mind, it gives peace of mind, huge amount of pleasure. 
ability to start and finish projects. Ten times as much air? Yeah. I mean, oxygen is our, is our energy source. Right. It's the oxygen that flows through the uh-huh. blood, the blood that goes to the muscles that gives us the energy that we have. It's our basic fuel. Mm-hmm. And you're saying we're getting, it's like we're, we're going out to our car and filling it up with a tenth of the, of the tank and then going off on a trip? Yeah, and expecting to go on a long trip. Think of that, yeah. Wow. And what, Wilhelm Reich, who's my hero... Um, good old Wilhelm. A good old Wilhelm. I remember him well. <laughs> in the, the organ chambers That's up in right. Massachusetts. Very good. Of course. Yeah. Well, Reich not only was a brilliant sexologist, but his his contention was that um, we, our churches, our schools, our family structures, our governments, everything conspires to make us not breathe very much to make us negate our most fundamental feelings. A child wants to touch his or her genitals when they're very young, till they're sexual from the moment they're born. And we put diapers on them, and we redirect their hands when they try to touch themselves. And one of the main ways that we can repress our natural, joyous, healthy, spiritually enlivening sexual urges is to hold our breath. We hold our breath to deal with shame. We hold our breath to deal with fear. All different motivations where there's a contraction involved. We hold the breath. So most people, by the time they're six or seven years old, only are using a fraction of their lung capacity. So what you're saying is that each of us, unconsciously, or out of our awareness, if you will, is doing a muscular contraction almost all of the time Mm -hmm. to inhibit breathing. Exactly. And, you, and yeah. we don't know about it. It's we, subconscious, unconscious, out uh-huh. of our awareness. Call it what you will. We're using our muscles to inhibit our breathing. Mm-hmm. Every person listening to this, myself sitting and interviewing you, I'm sitting here and contracting and holding on in some way if I'm not a master breather. Mm-hmm. And therefore, I'm inhibiting my energy. That's right. Yeah. Our capacity to feel is literally... I, I had the joy of being with absolute masters in many cultures, in the third world especially. And our capacity for joy, our capacity for peace of mind, our capacity to love, our capacity to connect to each other at the deepest level is hundreds of times greater than we ever imagined. Greater than I imagined growing up. You know, for me personally, you're preaching to the choir. I know, you know these things. Well, I used breathing to save my life when I was run over by that Winnebago Mm. 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And it was totally breathing that Mm -hmm. saved me, and I knew that. And they knew that when I got, when I was helicoptered to the hospital, Mm -hmm. because it was breathing that stopped me from going into shock. Mm -hmm. But what I wasn't aware of until just now is what you're talking about in terms of mini muscular contractions Mm -hmm. from the time of birth as a result of a suppression of natural function, which Mm -hmm. is part of our culture. Mm -hmm. I know that as well, and every person listening knows how we feel when we see a little boy or a little girl, a little baby, three months old, try to touch their genitals, and people are freaking out all over the place. Uh Why is this little tiny animal putting her finger in her vagina, right? Mm -hmm. And they try to pull it away and do something. And you're seeing this as part of of the source of the suppression Of the spirit, if you will. Exactly. It keeps us from the sacredness of life. So I'm not obsessed with sex, but I think that's one very primary um, urge and natural process that goes on in humans. It's one that we shut down very early. And it keeps us from, from our brilliance. It keeps us from connecting to spirit. It keeps us afraid. 
and the muscles between the ribs, the muscles of the diaphragm, muscles all over the body that can be available to either allow us to connect to our totality or to cut it off, become engaged in this conspiracy, if you will. Wow. We, we have such a capacity to be alive, and it's something that we can all cultivate. And so I've worked for 40 years. Uh, I, I studied with a master, a man who, Dr. Philip Kirkerud, brought Reiki in therapy from the East Coast, where Wilhelm Reich was, to the West sure. Coast many years ago. I remember Phil. And Phil gave the, you know, he did Reiki in therapy, um, he gave 60 sessions a week for 50 years. So he had a lot of experience with it. He worked 60 hours a week? For 50 years. He outdid me, and I thought I was up there in the ranks. Wow. You are up there, Richard. Wow, I know. You're way up there. <laughs> wow, 60. My word. He and Stanley Kellerman. That's right, yeah. Yeah, I knew Stanley at Esalen back Wonderful. in the 60s. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. We, I mean, we've got to do a whole series of programs on the, on the suppression of sexuality it's in, in very our country. Important. It's huge, yeah. and I know that. But we're, uh-huh. we're, we're in that, but that's only one aspect of suppression uh, of the human spirit. Mm-hmm. So, but breathing is a way out of the suppression. We don't want to spend too much time on diagnosis. We want to t- spend time on what to do about it, the treatment yeah. plan. Yeah. Right? right? It's enough with what's wrong. What's wrong? What's wrong? <laughs> we got to get to how to make it right. How uh-huh. to make it right? And we need to have other people because I'm. I'm blind to my blind spots. I don't see the ways that I don't breathe fully. I can't just, not an intellectual process. And my, my ego just absolutely will be freaked out if it calls for letting go of my walls so that I can truly be with you or anybody else. That's very scary to us. And a deep breath does exactly that. So we become afraid of life. We become afraid of each other. And with somebody who's studied, I've studied this all of my life now, basically, and I've learned wonderful ways that people can open up their breathing. I want three ways right now. I want to be able to share with our listeners some things that they can do while they're listening to learn how to breathe and open up some of these muscles that are suppressing their spirit. Please Uh tell us. One thing is probably not while you're listening, but you can do it when you have an empty stomach. Take your toothbrush when you're brushing your teeth first thing in the morning and gag yourself. That opens up the chest. That opens up the throat. It's amazing. It's done all over the world. Purposely gag. Purposely gag. And at first you might throw up a tiny bit, but um, his his hand is in his mouth. No, no, Richard. No, not here. (laughs) You didn't have to tell them that. Go ahead. So uh, at first the person might be afraid of throwing up, but very instantly you learn not to throw up. Okay, so what you're saying is the convulsive reaction of the body and dealing with the gagging reflex is going to open up the little intercostals between the ribs a bit and start us breathing. Yes. Great exercise. Another thing is when you're making love, Breathe through your mouth and not the nose. Make sounds. Feel f- free to just try making sounds. At first, it might be awkward. Siri. Very soon, that'll open a little, up a lot. You're encouraging people to make sounds while they're making I know. Love. Isn't that scandalous? Suppose somebody's oh. listening. Yeah, well, well you, you told me. It was just you and me, Richard. Oh, that's Come right. on. No, I mean, suppose somebody's <laughs> listening to these people making love. I mean, they, they, they could be their parents in the next room. Uh-huh. How threatening is that? You know how it is when you hear little kids laughing and how beautiful and natural that is? Love making is the same when we're not ashamed. Okay, so which not? How to, tell us again about breathing while making love. This sounds great. Breathe through the mouth. Breathe through Get the mouth. Get lots of, breathe as much as you can. While making love. While making love. 
maintain the level of excitement. Yes, agree with your partner with whom hopefully you're really intimate, making deep contact. How about the two people breathing together while making love? That's wonderful. But they should individually breathe like crazy too. And feel free to make sounds. Very important. You heard it from Dr. Kalsa, folks. It's okay to make... How can they really make loud sounds while they're making love or just little tiny babies? Louder the better. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Another thing a person can do that's very simple is in many cultures, smarty pants, wise people, traditional healers, say that personal power begins with abdominal control. And most people, if you ask them to pull a stomach in or push it out, they don't have that control. I see you do, but that's very rare. And so a person can gain abdominal control by holding their breath and pumping the stomach in and out. We can all do that. Once we can do that, then breathe from pubic bone to clavicle. Push the belly out as you begin the inhale. And then halfway into the inhale, soften the belly or even pull it in so that the area above the in the upper chest, all the way to the clavicle opens up, shoulders relaxed. So that kind of a deep breath opens magic to us. In many cultures, they say, when we can breathe from the nipples up to the clavicle, that, that last fifth of our lung capacity, that's when we can access the divine. That's when we can access our, our infinite creativity. That's where we're all geniuses, when we can breathe up to that level. And that's the kind of thing I teach people. I don't teach people how to have orgasm, but everybody, men and women, are capable of the most outrageous orgasms. An orgasm... Even old guys like me? Even old farts like me and you can orgasm. I don't know if you're allowed to use that word, so let's say replace, 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 erase, cancel, cancel. That word did not happen. Even gray beards like me can have a lot of pleasure. And... um, the, in fact, the orgasm, the involuntary contraction from that the head to toe that gives good, that gives infinite pleasure. So, in taking the focus of sex away from the genitals, inclu- and including the entire body, is what I'm talking about. A good cry can give very much that same quality too. Like babies, if you a watch full, them, a full body cry. So the toes are wiggling, they're snot all over the place, not sobbing. I mean, out of control crying. That opens up a lot of the in- inhibition in our breathing too. It's a wonderful thing to do. And you're also implying, I heard embedded in there, that it really is possible to have a full body orgasm, not just a genital orgasm, not just an orgasm, I say that starts with the genitals and expands, but it's actually a full body orgasm. The entire body involved. With this breathing. Yeah, and this brings the people who think that they're very religious and into a spiritual path, all of a sudden the heavens are open and they feel such awe and gratitude and literally, it's not a, not a churchy precept that we're all connected. They experience that connection with orgasm. Do you call what you do psychotherapy when you're working in the clinic and so on? No, when I work at Coast Clinic, yeah. what I'm doing is, is not the Riken therapy. How about when you're working with patients? I mean, do you ever call what you're doing therapy, psychotherapy? I just work with people's breathing. That's uh-huh. all I claim. Because that's I'm doing. what I was about to ask. Yeah. It sounds like a I major no one claims. of your major tools in your work, whether you call it therapy, counseling, yeah. whatever you call it. Uh, and I, I don't mean to diminish by putting no, it that way. It's fine. But uh, whatever nomenclature you yeah. use is more proper. Uh, breathing is a major tool. It is the tool. It is the t- it is 99% the, it is the, of the foundation time. tool of your work. Yeah. And you all heard, folks, he gave us three tools to use right away. One is to put a toothbrush in your mouth until you gag because the gag reflex itself opens up 
the, 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 uh, the rib cage, the little muscles between the ribs, the intercostals, the diaphragm, and the, the reaction to the gagging is a good first step. Mm-hmm. And, and the second one is to breathe from the, uh, oh, to breathe during, during, from the mouth during sexual activity and to feel Dr. Miller's a good student, isn't he? Uh, to breathe yeah. from the mouth during sexual activity and to be able to make sounds while you're Great. doing it. Don't yeah. inhibit the sounds because that's going to inhibit the mus- musculature Perfect. and decrease the breathing. Mm-hmm. And then the third is to breathe from the diaphragm, abdominal breathing, but then move it up through the chest from the nipples to the clavicle. Exactly. Okay. Like a beautiful wave in the ocean. We have a caller and we're going to take a call Terrific. right now. Terrific. Thank you. Let's do it, Michael. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Good morning, Dr. Miller. Um, Good morning. Two points. One is for you. Um, your trip, was that recent? It was. It was just last week. Ah, then I have a title for your book. Thank you. How I Flew Through Carmageddon. <laughs> oh, that's great. Subtitle, And Took Others With Me. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. And for your guest, yes. Um, what you've just mentioned about breathing deep and really fully getting into an orgasm, I believe that what I see when there's groups of masses of people extremely screaming and expressing their bodies in the way that you've described at ball game, I refer to that, for some of the reasons you've just outlined, as a scorgasm. <laughs> when people, when someone scores for their team, we saw it with the women's soccer team. We saw it with uh-huh. the San Francisco Giants winning the World Series. Just extreme ecstasy in groups of masses of people screaming and breathing. And I think that maybe what they're achieving by going to these games and uh, communing with others and having that kind of a breathing in their scorgasm when their team scores or wins that it's to achieve what you have mentioned in getting to that point. Of course, you're on an intimate, in a, a mass setting like that, but I, I suspect that maybe part of the reason they go is so that they can get into that kind of a deep breathing, and I'd like to hear your comment on that. I'd never thought about that. That's a wonderful insight. That's a great insight. Yeah. Thank you for your callgasm. So obviously anything that can get us to making loud sounds, clear sounds without strain, anything that can get, that can get us so that our whole body is engaged in what we're doing, like the scorgasm you're, you're talking about, and anything that can, can have a huge energy. Like I spent six years in Africa, mainly with traditional healers, and at a soccer game there with 20,000 fans, it's like 100,000 fans here, the energy level and the sound. And it's very, very, very electric and healing being in such an environment. I totally agree with you. Unfortunately, we don't do that every day. We need to breathe deeply and uninhibit our breath on a more regular basis. I get up every morning for 40 years at 3 and practice my breathing and meditation and chanting from 4 to 6.30. And that isn't even enough. That's a lot. Two and a half hours for 40 years opens up a lot, but there's still more to go. What time do you go to sleep? About 11.30 or 12. So you sleep five, four, five hours a night. Yeah, anybody who does yoga on that regular basis, their body is more relaxed than it would have been otherwise. I needed eight or nine hours when I began the yoga. Now I'm just a lot more relaxed all the time. I don't need to crash for so many hours to recharge. 
So you do this breathing yoga every day. Yes. Do you uh-huh. also do stretching yoga every day? Or There's how often breathing and stretching and movement within this yoga. It's free. Anybody can come to it. It's at the Stanford Inn from 4 to 6.30 a.m., seven days a week in the yoga room. You're all invited. So you don't just get up and do yoga. You actually get up and prepare yourself. You must get up at around 3 or something get in order up to get to this uh, hotel where you do mm-hmm. the yoga class. This morning I got up at 2.30. I take a cold shower till the water feels comfortable. I gag myself, I chant and meditate and set my intention and feel a lot of gratitude for life. Gratitude. I I drive from Pudding Creek to Stanford Inn every morning, and I do it with a bunch of other people, not just insomniacs, people who love it. We do it together. There's no charge for it. If you're interested, you can contact me at 707-813-1132 to do the free yoga. Say it again. Give them the number of free class. You have to be able to say it over and over again. Such a deal. You should do it. Go ahead. It's area code 707-813-1132. Or you can look it up on my website, reichianinstitute.org, R-E-I-C-H-I-A-N, institute.org. Outstanding. You just said something about gratitude, and I've developed a little slogan lately about life is about attitude, and the way to have a great attitude is to have gratitude. Talk to us about gratitude. In every tradition of the world that I've had the honor of dipping my little toe into, Richard, they talk about gratitude as a key, the alchemy for self-transformation and for healing, the alchemy for tapping into our joy and our deepest sense of meaning in life. Gratitude opens everything. Is it enough to be grateful as I am just to be alive, or do we need to be grateful for more than that? I don't think it has, there's no right or wrong with gratitude. Just being grateful in and of itself gives us a special feeling. Absolutely. And it's the special feeling that leads to healing, isn't it? That's correct. It opens up doors that one couldn't imagine otherwise. More and more work is being done in the area of healing now, both in this country and around the world, using tones, because we're becoming more and more aware that our biochemical, physical structure, our neurotransmitters, our nervous system, responds to vibrations, and sound mm-hmm. is a vibration. Telling us, tell us something about the place of sound in your healing work, please. Mm-hmm. Both yogis thousands of years ago and Wilhelm Reich recognized that specific sounds open up specific areas of the body in specific ways. And um, so Reich was a master at having people make exactly the tone that will allow that person's chest or diaphragm, or pelvis, to begin vibrating and to come alive. This tone is very important. It's part of breath, of course, too. And the yogis, I spend over an hour chanting every morning, and it's not just chanting songs, it's making specific sounds that allow us to access altered states of consciousness where gratitude is just a natural function. Let me interrupt and take this call over here. I see a light flashing. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. By golly, I got through. That's amazing. We got you through. Hello, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, what's your question or comment? Um, I, with your guest, I would like to ask him if he's familiar with uh, Shibui. Thank you. No, and, I'm oh, not. I have, I have more. Okay. Um, are you familiar with Shibui? No. Okay, it's, the, it's basically the art of Japanese gardening. Oh, Okay, and you know, like the Zen of everything, yes, kind of thing. And there was there's a book that I wanted to know if you've ever read the author uh, called Trevanian. 
No, I haven't. I have read the book, and I've and I've uh, read Trevanian. Have you read Shibui? I have. Yeah. Uh, okay. Part of the uh, the whole the whole Zen breathing Kundalini uh, everything. Um, there's some sexual scenes in the book. Yes. That are exactly what this man is talking with and about. You know, to mm-hmm. us at all. And I just was curious uh, if the, you know if there's any knowledge there and, and how that is. It's a great question. I was an exchange student in Japan when I was 15 in a little tiny village. Of okay, I'm going to get off the air, but, but thank you much. And thank it's you. It's a fascinating show. I love it. Thank you for calling in. So this stuff that I'm talking about with opening up the breathing to open up our life is universal. This isn't just uh, one tradition or two. It's been discovered by humanoids everywhere at all different ages. By the way, for those of you listening, if you want to read that book, it's, it's, it's fiction, but it is a very interesting read. It's Trevanian, T-R-E-V-A-N-I-A-N. I'm sure you can get a hold of it on, on Amazon. So you do um, an hour a day. I mean, what a fascinating life you live. You get up at 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. You take your shower, cold shower. Jefferson put his feet in cold water every every morning for 30 years. Very healthy thing to do. Amazingly scary thing for me to even think about. <laughs> I'm, I'm all about hot water. The idea of taking a cold shower, I shudder. I get good cold fingers right now. You take this, and then you gag yourself. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. I've tried to avoid gagging myself with my toothbrush. <laughs> I did it for 20 years. So I hated gagging, but now uh, I'm going to go back to gagging myself. Uh-huh. In fact, now I'm thinking about the next time I make love, I'll gag myself while I'm making love and breathe at the same time, <laughs> all in search of that ultimate... Well, never mind. Um, <laughs> okay, and then you, ch- then you chant for how long? Over an hour. For over an hour. Mm-hmm. C- uh, could you do a little tiny bit of chanting right here on the radio for us? Here are two chants I love. Ekonkara Satanama Siriwa Eguru Apsahai Hoa Sacheda Sachadoa Har Har Har. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was very beautiful. And a lot of them have overtones, which are very important for What's, what's an overtone? This is not a radio alert. This is an overtone. That was amazing. That sounded like several instruments at once. Do it again, please. The people all over the world have figured out these tones open up light, they open up spaciousness. When we feel stuck in any way, they can help to unstick us. Siri, I've got to try something right now. This is so (laughs) exciting. I'm starting to sweat here. If you're in a safe place, folks, I mean a safe place like not a moving vehicle, if you're in some place where you can close your eyes, I'd like you to just sit in your chair with your feet on the ground, both feet, don't uncross your legs, put both feet on the ground. See if you can get yourself into some kind of a relaxed position. I'm then going to ask you to close your eyes, and when you close your eyes and breathe the way Dr. Kalsa Siri is telling you to breathe from the abdomen, I'm then going to ask him to make this sound and see if you can let this sound envelop into your consciousness. I think we've got an interesting experiment here. You ready, folks? Just do that. Sit in, in a comfortable position. Get your feet on the ground. See if you can let your shoulders relax. 
breathe from the abdomen. Push your belly out as you initiate the breath. Oh, good. Push your belly out and then breathe from the abdomen. Now close your eyes. Siri, give us that tone again, please. so beautiful. I've got to tell you, I did the experiment while you were doing the chant. I closed my eyes. I saw orange light just sort of go out throughout my entire body. Beautiful. That was a beautiful demonstration. As part of the Mendocino Music Festival, they're having throat singers, I think on Friday. I can't remember when. But uh, you can hear people who are truly masters of making these types of therapeutic sounds right here in Mendocino. Okay, so we now have two modalities they're non-invasive, they're not drugs or medicine, they're not even something you eat. They, they don't cost anything. One of them is breathing. You gave us three different ways to breathe to start out. Another is chanting, is looking mm -hmm. for some way to sound, to make a sound, to find a sound that causes a resonance in our system that is a relaxing resonance, exactly. such as the one that you just made. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So those are two of the modalities. Do you have a third that you that you work with frequently? What's another one in your in your toolbox that you bring? I made out my living for five years. Um, you may have heard of Barbara Bouchard, a real master of acupressure on the Mendocino Coast. We studied. I apprenticed with the same master she did. I own a tea garden, so I made my living for a number of years, taking people's pulses and holding acupressure points on them and. Breathing with the person, synchronizing my breath with the person I was working with. And I still include that in every... I make my living doing the Reikian therapy, and mm -hmm. I include some acupressure, acupressure every time. Acupressure, acupressure. These are things people, very simple points that anybody can learn to hold on themselves to open up areas that, um, that stop us from, from being ourselves more fully, stop us from being relaxed and joyous and and connected to our life purpose. I Very love simple. tools that people can do by themselves and they yeah. don't need someone else around to do it. We're gonna take another call here. I see that light flashing again. Thank you, Michael. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Hi there. Hi there. Um, I would like to offer another very simple breathing, bit of breathing information. Thank you. Um, and also, I had to call the main number to get the number to call so because i neglected to give the number 707-937-5103 thank you for reminding me okay <laughs> um i have something that's extremely simple simpler than anything you can imagine and what it what it is is extending the exhale extending the exhale good idea because if you think important. about it when we're in an alarm mode to use simple terms we tend to breathe go breathe in up into the chest and through the mouth so we can think of the inhale as taking us a little more towards alarm. And then when we're at rest, our exhale is actually longer than the inhale. So Good when we point. purposely extend the exhale, it sends a message back to that limbic system, the brain, the clearing house for the, for the nerve system that, hey, the exhale is longer than the inhale, must be at rest. So it really sends, it's, it sends a direct message back to the brain, and it's the simplest thing you can do. <laughs> Thank you very much. You're entirely right. That's right. so simple and so important. Good. Well, thank you. And if any of my clients are listening, they'll know who this is. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much for calling in. All right. Bye-bye.
breathing, breathing, chanting, mm. finding special acupressure points. Mm -hmm. I see you pointing to one right now. It's hard to describe over the radio, but it's right near the base of the thumb, in between the thumb and the forefinger. Press mm -hmm. on my hand in that way, please. I see another call. Oh, oh, wow, I feel mm -hmm. electricity going right up my body. Let's take that call, Michael. Thank you for calling in. Hello, welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Hello. Hi. I just want to add that in the Mayan language, uh, the word for singing means both praise and grief, the understanding being that if you don't sing, you will get sick. I think that's directly related to your conversation on breathing. Beautiful point. Thank you. Absolutely. Beautiful. Thank you so much. If you don't breathe, if you don't sing, you'll get sick. Mm -hmm. Do a little singing every day. Another thing a person can do that's very simple is to laugh. At first, to laugh artificially. Big belly laugh. <laughs> oh, you're good. For several minutes. And it opens up a lot of the, the, the respiratory capacity that we should have open all the time. But it's the full body laughter where after a while we're, we're not pretending, we're just overcome with the, the joy of the laughter. So it's sort of like those people who say, oh, but that sounds contrived until you point out to them, well, so is turning the tap at the sink, but the water <laughs> does come out. So that if you, if you yeah. do this make-believe false laughter, mm -hmm. it turns into real laughter. Absolutely. And the research, by the way, there's scientific mm -hmm. research on this, that that actual starting with a false laughter, ha, 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 and then all of a sudden you're into real laughter, mm -hmm. actually changes the neurotransmitters. It changes mm -hmm. the chemical function. Mm -hmm. By the way, folks, there's a book you all have to at least take a look at that is related to this topic. It's by an almost Nobel Prize winner, and I say almost because she'll tell you in the book how gender politics uh, prevented her from winning the Nobel Prize. But her name is Candace Pert, and the book is called Molecules of Emotion. I love that book. You'll love that book. Yeah. It's a great book. And, and the, one of the bottom lines of, of Candace Pert's wonderful book, in fact, I ought to invite her on the program and talk about mm -hmm. it. It's such a fabulous book. I love book. her voice. I love hearing her speak. Yeah, she's terrific. Uh, one of the bottom lines of, of her book is that, you know, if you put a little tiny bit of chlorine in one end of a swimming pool, you can measure it at the other end of the p swimming pool almost instantly. Mm -hmm. That's exactly how our body is. Mm -hmm. Every single cell in our body feels everything all the time. There's no such a thing as touching something with your finger and not having your foot feel it. Mm -hmm. There's no such a thing as feeling a feeling in your heart and not feeling it in your shoulder. Mm -hmm. The entire system is a connected sensing system all the time, isn't mm -hmm. it? And our focus this program has basically been how do we develop that sensitivity that you're describing so that we're fully alive. And so if we're unhappy, every single cell in our body is unhappy. It's contracted and, and if afraid. We're, yes. Yeah. And, and if we're feeling suppressed the way you have been talking to us about how we can be suppressed from, from almost infancy, then every little cell in our body is suppressed. Mm -hmm. There is no wonder that there's so much disease mm -hmm. around because it would be like walking into a garden and suppressing the flowers. Yeah. And that tourniquets around, around the stem of every flower. And choking it off yeah. so that it only breathes one-tenth of the amount mm -hmm. that it can breathe, which is mm -hmm. what you're telling us that exactly. each of us, that myself, Mike, you're, not you because you're, you're, you're such a student of this and a practitioner, but that we're walking around 
breathing one-tenth of the air that we possibly can. This is phenomenal. Mm. I mean, this is like hearing that we're only using one-tenth of our brain. In fact, mm. maybe the two are related. Maybe the brain isn't getting Absolutely. enough oxygen. You're totally right there, Richard. What an eye-opener. What mm. a fantastic interview. Any other tidbits you want to leave us with? We have maybe a minute to go here. That's just that. Thank you. The work that I do, I work with people every week for several years to really open up their lung capacity and their breathing and their access to their emotions and their sexuality. But a person doesn't have to do anything with me or any technique to just consciously breathe deeply. Slow the breath down, deepen it, as that one color said so eloquently, to focus on the exhale a great deal, elongate the exhale. We are one breath away from enlightenment, say masters in many traditions. We don't need a, um, a guru to teach us to breathe. It's something we innately know. It helps to have an expert who, um, who can speed up the process, but it's something we innately know. When you breathe consciously, the effect of the breath is much greater than simply being an automatic. Thank you for the great question. Oh, it, it's been a pleasure having you here. I look forward to having you again because the way that you relate and everything that you talk about can be summed up in the word love. And I want to talk to you about love the next time you come mm -hmm. on to the program because love trumps all, doesn't it, Siri? It trumps all. Love trumps totally all. Totally does. Thank you, listeners. And I hope you're feeling the love that we're sending you, Dr. Kalsa and I, for your own healing. And I hope you hear the message that so much, if not all of what you need, is really inside of you. And that there are those of us who are practitioners, doctors, healers, and so on, who may guide you along the path, who may warn you of certain landmines, but really it's all inside. So thank you for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, which is made possible by the staff at KZYX and my friend and colleague here in the studio, engineer Mike Delora. Please join me again in exactly two weeks at 9 a.m. Pacific Daylight Savings Time. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Thank you.